Hello and welcome to the very first in a new podcast, The First Incision by CMF, where we discuss topics of the interface of faith and medicine that affect our Christian lives in today's world. I'm your host, Dr. James Howitt, and I've got here with me today, Dr. James May. James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So James is a London-based GP who also works uh, for Healthwatch, an evidence-based medicine charity, and he's coming today to talk to us about the very interesting topic of mindfulness. Right, so James, we're just going to jump straight into things. Tell us practically, first of all, what is mindfulness as a psychological technique? uh, And also, what's its goal? What are people looking for when they're using it? Yeah, thank you. So mindfulness, as far as I understand it, is originally a Buddhist technique that was then developed into a psychological technique, which uh, grew a whole range of different applications, including clinical treatments for anxiety and depression, but for all sorts of things. And really, when you go to the bookshops, you can see mindfulness being applied across all sorts of parts of life, gardening or whatever you like. Yeah, it seems to be everywhere at the moment, isn't it? That's right, yes. Uh, And it aims to focus our minds on our sensations and our experiences in a detached way so that we're not committed to them and upset by them particularly, but just observe them and see them as transient things passing in front of us. Uh, and alongside this, there's an attitude of non-judgmental self-acceptance and self-compassion. Okay. These are important words. Uh, that sees suffering as a transient thing that passes in front of us. And even that our desires are in fact illusions uh, and that we just come to see them as things that pass. Um, Uh, It's particularly become an issue today because of the distractions, I think, of the modern world. Uh, And it aims positively at human flourishing and trying to make us better, happier people. Um, And it is quite a complex thing, I think, and it takes quite a while to get your head around what is going on with mindfulness. Um, But it does, I, I have found in thinking about it, that it's been a very uh, useful way of reflecting on what what it does mean to flourish as a human being uh, and uh, how we can help each other to do that. Okay, so we've already identified that that there seems to have been a real kind of spread of mindfulness. What what is it you think has driven the the increase of popularity in the last decade? The last decade seems to have... uh, coincided quite specifically with um, the rise of smartphones and social media um, and that the, the reason for that is very clear is that we already in our modern lives are very busy there's lots going on uh, and uh, even though actually we've got in some ways more time than people might have had in the past fridges and washing machines and other technology have meant that we've got a lot more free time but our free time seems to be filled with things that distract our attention, whether it's advertisements or bills that we've got to pay or meetings we've got to do. We're all aware all the time that things pop into our minds of obligations and things that we worry about. Uh, And so mindfulness uh, and social media and uh, uh, smartphones obviously feed into that. They distract us. They nudge us in certain directions the whole time. And we have them in our pockets uh, and uh, our lives feel very distracted. And so mindfulness seems a very helpful way of retreating uh, and finding a place where that doesn't happen. And even managing to sort of control these distracting thoughts. Uh, by perhaps observing them in this sort of transient way. Um, There's also another motivation, I think, recently, 
which is uh, a broader uh, theme in society, which is the therapeutic society, where we no longer have uh, the friends and the community around us, particularly in big cities, where we can sort of bounce ideas off people for the everyday problems in life. And we increasingly turn to sort of therapeutic options and get professionals involved or techniques to help us get through life. And I think there is an element of the therapeutic that comes in with mindfulness as well, which makes it popular today. Okay. So there's almost some kind of... uh maybe some kind of contrast between the the social isolation and yet increased connectivity that we have with smartphones but kind of the devolution of family yes there's all sorts of paradoxes that run all the way through um our current culture and and mindfulness that we are connected but we're not necessarily relating to people uh and so mindfulness is taking us a step back from that interesting so how did the practice of mindfulness start where did it all come from as far as I understand, it started with Buddha, uh, with what was called Vipassana meditation or insight meditation, uh, where we become aware of ultimate reality and its transience uh, by performing this meditation and the oneness ultimately of reality. In the 1960s, um, in the sort of countercultural hippie movement uh, in California in particular, there was an interest in Eastern religions uh, and people started practicing mindfulness. And I don't know exactly when that happened, but there are a number of movements that happened at the time which seemed to feed into uh, the, the sort of ideas that mindfulness has become part of. So one was the human potential movement uh, in which we are encouraged to have unconditional positive self-regard uh, and Carl Rogers, the psychologist, was the, the man behind that. Then there was the self-esteem movement, uh, which has been very influential in the way that we think today uh, by a guy called Nathaniel Brandon. Okay. Uh, and interestingly, his first pillar of self-esteem was mindfulness. Uh, and this developed over time and was um, uh, used by John Kabat-Zinn, who was influenced by Buddhist teachers, who in 1979 uh, developed what was called mindfulness-based stress reduction, or MBSR, the initials that you sometimes see around the place. Uh, and this was a sort of step from the more religious or cultural practice of mindfulness to it being a more scientific and clinically um, established um, uh, technique. And then more recently, Professor Mark Williams, who's a psychologist and now retired uh, from the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, or he founded the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, has been publishing large numbers of articles and books on the subject of mindfulness. And I think that he coincides with the much more recent sort of um, popularity of mindfulness. So what does the evidence for mindfulness show us with these books, these publications? What, what, are, we, what are we kind of learning from an evidence base about this? Well, in recent years, um, we've moved from relatively few trials on the subject of mindfulness to currently now th- several thousand trials on mindfulness. But the problem is that mindfulness is a complex intervention, uh, and that makes gathering evidence very difficult it's very difficult to know what are the defining features of mindfulness uh, which you're studying and how you know which of those might be the effective ones. 
And really trials should try and figure out which are the variables and how you are knowing which one is doing is the active component. And that's difficult. A simple summary uh, of the evidence would be to say that the majority of studies, because of these problems, are very poor in quality uh, and that the better studies have the worst results in terms of the effectiveness of mindfulness. Possibly some of the benefits... Uh, there's some evidence of benefit for recurrent depression, um, but it's always unclear if it's mindfulness or some other factor that's the main reason for that. Uh, and Mark, I had a conversation on the phone with Mark Williams, and he himself said that the evidence for mindfulness is, in his word, overblown. Right. Yes, because presumably you can't blind these kind of studies, particularly, or the, there must be quite a quite a lot of challenges that come across with doing any kind of any kind of relevant space exactly. in this kind of study. Yeah. yeah. So is it possible to pin down which specific components of mindfulness are effective? Well, I think it's very difficult. Um, so, for example, is it the focused attention on individual sensations that is the effective component of mindfulness? And if so, then would listening to music count and would that have the same result? Or is it the detached attitude or the sort of stoical indifference to what our emotions are that's um, that's the effective component or the non-judgmental self-accepting and self-compassionate stance uh, or the insight that reality is an illusion all these things are mindfulness together uh, but they've all got quite different uh, effects on who we are as people uh, or is it just taking time out to sit quietly uh, or is it a combination of all of them? I, I don't know. Uh, and I haven't seen studies effectively untangle those things. And many studies conclude we cannot be sure that it is the specific components of mindfulness that have had this effect. Um, so, uh, and, and as you point out, the, there's an additional problem uh, of blinding these trials. Uh, it's very difficult to have a control group since anyone who is in one arm of it will know whether or not they are doing mindfulness and this makes it very difficult to untangle whether or not it is the uh, intervention that's having an effect or some other thing. So with all these studies are there any suggestions of any negative consequences for mindfulness? Well there have actually unfortunately been very few studies on the negative consequences for mindfulness and um, that's uh, unfortunate and possibly itself tells a story about the enthusiasm to show that it's working uh, rather than the more balanced approach where we're looking to check both positive and negative effects. Uh, there has been a large study in America that talks about, uh, that, that looks at how criminals had their thinking changed by mindfulness. Uh, and Whilst I understand that there have been several studies on criminals, this particular study showed that their cognitions, their thinking about criminal behaviour, seem to be made worse by the practice of mindfulness. And it's been speculated that the sort of the idea of self-acceptance and the coming to terms with who you are that mindfulness sometimes encourages has been behind that. There have also been case reports uh, of uh, suicide uh, and of psychotic episodes that have been made worse by mindfulness and other forms of meditation. Uh, and so we, which I think emphasises that actually we do need to separate out uh, the different elements of mindfulness because it may be that the self-compassion element is reassuring or that the, um, the focus on particular sensations is calming. But it may be that 
the sense that the insight that reality isn't really there and is an illusion is disturbing and upsetting or or the other way around and we just don't know um, but it is important to figure those things out so it's very obvious really that our current culture is in a, a place of expressive individualism we've already talked about social media eruptions as well how do these elements of society fit in with our, our current views of mindfulness well I, I sometimes think that we still live in the 1960s at least we've still got the same uh, elements uh, which date back to the 1960s of consumerism uh, which developed in the 1960s uh, the interest in eastern religions which became much stronger in the 1960s and the development of the self-esteem movement and all these self movements and the therapeutic society uh, we talk about the need to find ourselves we talk about the need to be true to ourselves star wars of course famously talks about the force being strong within us uh, and we talk about finding our own meanings and creating our identities and expressing who we are uh, consumerism helps us to do this because we buy stuff which creates our lifestyle and that may be holidays and travel to exotic locations to then take selfie photos of ourselves and so social media also feeds into this where we curate our experiences and present who we want to express ourselves to be to our friends and our family and people around us uh, and to people we don't know uh, and so this is a, a and these are all elements which feed into each other quite strongly uh, paradoxically buddhism is actually uh, quite self-negating um, and sees the self as an illusion which we uh, can't grasp onto and hold onto too tightly okay. because it, it vanishes uh, and I've been puzzling over this a little bit because I think mindfulness doesn't seem to quite do that and I wonder if it's because of the way it's been imported into the West uh, and into our cultural context which is much more self-orientated uh, and so uh, mindfulness talks about self-acceptance and self-compassion, which again are both from a Buddhist origin, but they have slightly subtly different meanings uh, when they're given a Western translation. So the acceptance in Buddhism is to accept that we're not really there, maybe, okay. that, that we're just illusions, whereas the acceptance in the Western context might even be a reaction against christian guilt that we've got to learn to come to terms with our guilt so it has a, a different feeling in, in that sense i think there's also uh, because of the secular and even atheist culture that we have around us uh, there's a need to create from nothing because life ultimately has no meaning we need to create our meanings um, and there isn't a foundation for the meaning and so maybe there is a kind of symbiosis between the buddhist idea that the reality is that life uh, that ourselves aren't real and the atheist thing uh, where which would agree with that on many levels and our need therefore to create ourselves Okay, I mean, this, that's all very good, and, and it's good we can sit here and talk about the evidence. Uh, but how would you, what would you say to people who argue, well, if it works for me, then why should I, if I feel better, why should I really worry about what the evidence says? Well, I, I have a, a lot of sympathy for that uh, on one level, because the evidence is very difficult to, to find, and, and we don't stop 
uh, doing things just because we don't have definitive psych, uh, uh, scientific evidence for something. Uh, and general practice and primary care is full of uh, common sense advice that we give to people that, strictly speaking, has no evidence base. And and maybe we just advise people according to things that might seem helpful and they don't necessarily take them up and we, and we don't need to sort of uh, recommend that this will definitely work for you uh, and that's anyways a bit of a, a myth in medicine I think uh, that we can sort of have magic bullets to to solve life's, life's problems. So that that's on the one hand. On the other hand, though, um, to say it works for me uh, raises the question of what has worked for you. Uh, so uh, a parallel example might be, for example, the faddish uh, diets that are around us. Now, it may be that you have read about a diet recently that you thought, that sounds interesting, and you, you try it, and you manage to lose weight. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that it worked mm. for me because you've objectively lost weight yeah, you've achieved what you were aiming to do yeah so it's difficult to argue against but then you, you'd have to raise the question of well what is it that worked was it this diet or could any diet have worked for you or could it just have been the enthusiasm to lose weight which drove you to the diet book which made you then lose weight. You maybe started eating less, uh, whether or not you were on a particular diet or doing exercise. And so I think the same question would apply to the mindfulness. Is it the mindfulness itself that's made you uh, feel better or is it something else? So I think an additional problem, uh, though, is that it's very difficult for us to work out what is best for us. Uh, we're, we're conflicted very often in our motivations um, and the example of the, the the study for the criminals and their criminal cognitions I think demonstrates this they may genuinely feel better uh, for having their guilt relieved and thinking that they can just accept themselves and accept their criminal cognitions and they think it's fine to be a bad person that might seem extreme but um, there, there's also uh, our tendency towards being self-orientated and uh, if uh, mindfulness encourages us just to think about ourselves and our own feelings then that might also be negative in the long run and I'm just cautious also about the idea of it worked for me when we live in a very me-centered world uh, it may not make us better people just because we feel better so are there any differences between mindfulness and uh, maybe more biblical stillness or biblical meditation that we see i think that mindfulness potentially has a lot in common with biblical meditation uh, clearly the bible and the psalms in particular uh, do exhort us to meditate uh, a lot um, and uh, humanly speaking we need space uh, and time and solitude uh, to do that and Jesus himself withdraws to solitary places uh, a lot of the time in order to be able to pray um, so this is mandated biblically uh, and we should do that the subtleties of what that means uh, and how we apply that in our lives I think are worth exploring a bit however um, it's interesting for example that the um, word withdraw uh, which is used in the gospels when talking about Jesus withdrawing is often uh, 
the type of withdrawal to kind of um, in a battle to strategically reframe yourself before re-entering the battle. It gives it a slightly different feel Mm. to think of it like that. Another example is the um, psalmist saying, be still and know that I am God. And we might have sometimes a slightly sentimental view of what that means. And we, a lot of Christian books have pictures of sunsets and mountains on them, uh, which actually, interestingly, is a little bit like the, the mindfulness books, which have pictures of often beautiful women sitting by calm lakes with rocks and things. Okay. But this sort of calm beauty, uh, which uh, we see around us, we transpose onto our sort of biblical interpretation, and it may not necessarily be the way that the Bible meant it. So the, the biblical narrative moves us actually from a garden to a city, uh, and it's about people and being together in multitudes and, and sometimes noisy multitudes. Uh, and silence sometimes in the Bible is seen as a bad thing. Um, in fact, often uh, enemies, for example, are silenced. And the psalmist says, God, do not be silent. We need God speaking into our lives. Mm. Um, so uh, the the be still actually in the psalm is uh, is in a, also in a battle context uh, and Jesus himself he says to the storm be still and to the demon possessed man be still so in, uh, I was trying to think of a picture that helps us uh, think what might this look like for us so it may be that we're in a shopping mall uh, buying lots of things pursuing our materialist dreams and God says to us be still and know that I am God whereas we maybe prefer the the view that is a little bit, bit more like the mindfulness view that it's us finding God in our tranquility that there are sunsets and mirror-like lakes uh, rather than God finding us in storms and in our wild and distracted states. So I think this needs exploring in all sorts of ways, and Mm. I don't think we should make too many assumptions about it, and perhaps we need to think how much we've been influenced by a sort of Zen-like way of looking at the world. So is there, do you think, a general tension then between the Christian faith and the practice of mindfulness? Uh, Yes, I think there is a tension. Uh, There's always a tension with Christianity. Christianity never uh, has sees things the way the rest way the rest of the world does. Probably just as well, otherwise we wouldn't have a podcast to record. (laughs) Exactly right. but uh, there are many things in common with mindfulness, I'd say. I think the pursuit of human flourishing is something that Christians can share with uh, mindfulness um, and Buddhism. Uh, and the, the need to deal with distractions uh, and the, the need to face our suffering. Uh, all these are things that we can share, as well as, interestingly, the idea that life is transient and ephemeral. The, the psalmist says that all flesh is like grass. So there's a lot in common uh, with mindfulness and Buddhism. But Buddhism does go further uh, than, than that and says that all of reality is an illusion and nothing is solid. Whereas Christianity calls us back to us having a rock and the person of Jesus is our rock and our cornerstone. He is a firm place we can stand and our identity is not created out of nothingness. It's given to us by him and we are his children and that is our firm identity and place to stand. Um, 
there's also a stoicism about mindfulness uh, that uh, where we observe our sufferings and don't get engaged with them and just see them passing, which I think is uh, at odds with a Christian worldview. And John starts in his book, The Cross of Christ, if I could just quote him because I think he puts it better than I can. He says, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a god who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectively be- uh, respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But every time, uh, after a while, I've had to turn away, and in my imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, backs lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks. So I think... Ultimately, there is a big difference, and Christianity does have a lot more to offer that uh, both in our approach to suffering and our understanding of the nature of reality. And the incarnation itself is about God entering into this world. So God somehow enters into our transient world uh, and lives a brief life here on earth some 2,000 years ago and somehow redeems even the transients. So is there an overall take-home message, do you think, from from what you've shared with us today? Uh, I think that the main take-home message is that we often want life to be simple and we are often enthusiastic about new techniques and new things that might help us and solve our problems. But life in its reality is often much more complicated. I think uh, cultural... Uh, baggage that we bring to these things often dominates us subconsciously so that we take it in directions that are perhaps less helpful uh, and and there's a lot of questions about the evidence and uh, what's actually working with mindfulness that I don't think have been satisfactorily answered yet. So finally where could people go if they, they've been listening they're very interested they're like where can I go to, to get more information or to find other resources on this? Well, it depends what you're looking to do. If you're looking to find out about mindfulness, then there's there's numerous books, uh, two that I've read. Uh, one is called Mindfulness in Plain English, uh, which is quite good if you're wanting to understand a little bit more about a Buddhist understanding of what mindfulness is in particular. Uh, another is called The Mindful Way Through Depression, uh, which is by John Kabat-Zinn, who really founded the sort of clinical approach to mindfulness, and Mark Williams. Uh, and but if you're trying to look at the more cultural background I found a book uh, called Selfie by Will Storr uh, is very helpful in exploring since the 1960s the sort of the impact of the self-esteem movement in particular but he takes a, a looks at things more broadly than that still then there's a book uh, by Shelley Turkle who's a psychologist Uh, who writes a book called Reclaiming Conversation in the Digital Age. And she uh, looks at the impact uh, 
digital media have had on how we interact with each other, which I think is part of uh, what's going on with the popularity of mindfulness and uh, is worth looking at. And a Christian book which I found helpful, which is quite short and easy to uh, access, is called The TechWise Family. I don't think you have to have your own family to, to learn from this book. And it has a biblical approach to technology uh, which you may not agree with everything it says but I think it's quite helpful Amazing, James you've given us so much to think on, so much to go away and ponder thank you so much for coming on the show, I'm really really grateful Uh, and thank you to everyone for listening I hope you've enjoyed yourselves and we'll be with you again in two weeks time, thanks and God bless 